0: So we learn in today's text why the sun came up this morning. The reason that the sun rose today is found right here in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. So the sun should not have come up this morning. We should not still be here. Life should not have gone on. Life should not have continued, and life would not have continued if God had not said what He said here and done what He said that He was going to do right here. If if we come to the Bible with a, a sense of entitlement, then we we miss everything in the Bible. If you approach your life with a, a sense of entitlement and... Uh, I deserve this, and I've earned this, and I'm worthy of this. Then when good things happen to you, you won't see them as grace. You'll just see them as, as compensation. And so you'll miss the, the love that is coming your way when those good things happen. And when, when bad things happen in your life, you'll feel, you'll feel robbed. You'll be, you'll be provoked to anger. And even deeper discouragement because the, the bedrock underneath that, the way you're seeing things and evaluating the circumstances in your life is your starting point is I am entitled to blank. I deserve blank. Well, the sun coming up this morning is just another thing that you and I were not entitled to. We're just not entitled to have the sun come up this morning. And we know it's going to come up tomorrow, and it's going to come up the next day, and it's going to come up the next day. Okay, If you've got cool apps on your phone like I do, you know the exact time, 5.48 this morning. You could get up and you could see the sun come up over the mountains. And it it is something you can be sure of, but it's something that we take for granted. So we find out here, though, in the text we're reading today, why? Why there is a predictability To things like sunrises and sunsets. It's because God said so. And it is because God didn't decide to give us what we deserve. Because He's a good and gracious God. So when you read about Noah and his blessings, remember that Noah's blessings are our blessings. Most of the blessings that we'll read about today are blessings that all of you have, whether you're a Christian or not. There is some particular to the family of, of God that we'll look at too. But Noah's blessings are our blessings. And then Noah is given at the close of our text today. Noah is given a sign. He's given a a reminder. And Noah's reminder is also our reminder. And when we see it, we need to be be reminded. So let me pray and we'll get started. Some of you may think that this prayer is, is redundant. You think, man, Pastor Curtis just prayed for half an hour. Do we really need to pray again. <laughs> Was it twenty twenty-eight minutes? <laughs> so, you know, this prayer is, is totally selfish every week. This is just, this is my prayer for God to help me. And rather than just be silent for two minutes and pray quietly in front of all of you, I figure I'd just bring you in and maybe you can join with me. So that's. That's why we pray right away again. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for uh, making that sun come up today. God, thank you for uh, for pushing it, pulling it, however you work miraculously, God. I mean, we, we know some of what happens naturally in this universe, but we still have no clue how it all holds together. It's by you, God, by your hands. You are the one that turns this earth. You are the one that moves this earth. And you are the one that, that blesses us each and, and every day with a, the most beautiful light we could imagine breaking through the darkness over and over and over and over. And God, we just miss these things. We just take it for granted, God. So help us to to see this world through the right glasses, through the right lenses, the lenses of your truth. We should be as your people, those who know reality. We are not deluded. We are not given to illusions. We are not buying into lies. We are able to see everything. As C.S. Lewis said, God, we we don't just know Christ because we are Christians. We see everything by you and your word. So God, thank you for opening our eyes. And now we get to open your book. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would come that Your Holy Spirit would, would fill the believers here in a, in a special way, God, that helps us to understand things that, where we need spiritual translation. And pray, God, that Your Word would, would make its way deeply into our hearts. That Your truth would embed itself in us in such a way that we are changed. That we see differently, that we hear differently, and then, Father, that we would live differently in a way that pleases You and and honors You. We pray these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, please open up to Genesis chapter 8. We were going to go all the way through chapter 9 today, but we weren't going to be able to do that. Not... And still have a second service. So we're just going to work through 8, chapter 20, through verse uh, 17 of chapter 9. And you'll see the the outline here is is pretty simple. In chapter 8, verse 20, God is going to do something. It's going to talk about God. And then in beginning of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Noah in, in verse 20 of chapter 8 is going to do something when he gets off the ark. And, and then it's going to talk about what God does in response. And that's 8.21 all the way through 9.17. That's where we'll get today. And then next week, we'll get back to Noah and finish out chapter 9. So it goes Noah, God, and Noah. And today, we'll, we'll just do Noah and God. And we start here in verse 20. And we read about what Noah does. He and his family have just been rescued They've been on this ark for, for over a year. And God plants the ark on dry land. The floodwaters are receding. Uh, the earth is habitable again. And so in verse 20, then... And the idea here is that immediately. So this is the first thing that Noah does. It's not like then, a year at later. It's, it's right away is the point. Then Noah, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now just so we understand what's going on here Noah all Noah did was he he held a worship service. That's what Noah did. The first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark was he he worshiped God. He didn't come out, you know, Kicking his heels and and, and take, he didn't kiss the ground. We're not told that. You might have thought he would have done that. The first thing he does is he worships. Now, now worship was different. There were some ways that worship was different. You see that in the Old Testament before Jesus, and and, and the way we worship after Jesus. There are some there are some different elements, and one of the different elements you see here, and that was that God instructed his people. Uh, that they were to bring offerings to him. They were to give up something that was meaningful and, and special to them. Whether it was money, whether it was um, part of their, their livelihood or their crops, or whether it was sacrifices. And one of the things that they would bring is they would bring clean animals to God. Animals that were classified as clean. Animals that could otherwise have been used to provide for, for families and for food. So they are giving up something important to them. But God instructed them that they were to, as a way of worshiping him, to give up something important to them and were to make these sacrifices. And of course, we don't do that anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice. So he told them to worship like this in the Old Testament so that they would they would begin to understand how they were going to be saved and how relationship with God was made possible. It was made possible through blood being shed and through sacrifices. But they weren't good enough, right? Ultimately, because they kept having to do them over and over and over again. And then Jesus is sacrificed and then no more sacrificing. Therefore, he is the ultimate sacrifice. He he takes care of the sin problem. And so it's not needed anymore. But in Noah's day, starting back in Adam's day, life, we see it. But in Noah's day, um, this would be like going to, to worship on a Sunday and gathering with the church like we are here today. But an element of this would be building an altar and following God's instruction of how God wanted to be worshipped. So Noah exits the ark Right, he's got his family on his arms. He has, He clearly has joy on his heart and he builds this altar. He builds a place of worship and he worships God, And he comes before he comes before God and and he is he's doing at least two things here Uh, underneath this heading of worship. He's doing at least two things. One is he's expressing his gratitude. I mean, that's why it happens immediately after he gets off of the ark. So, God, I know that this was this was all you're doing. It's a miracle that we're still here today. So thank you. We want to worship you right now. So he's expressing his gratitude, but he also clearly is is, is expressing the consciousness of his sin before God. In other words, remember what we just said, what the sacrifice means and why God had his people worshiping him through sacrifice. To remember that you are a sinful people. I am a sinless God. We... Something has to happen in order for us to be reconciled and to be made one. Atonement needs to happen. And that will happen temporarily through these sacrifices and ultimately through the sacrifice of Christ. So Noah, when he gets off the ark, right, he is thankful to God. But he is is admitting before God on behalf of he and his family that God, I, I know that we are not deserving to come off this ark. I mean, that ark had... Had animals in it and us in it and a lot of sin in it. You weren't like preserving the sinless people. Okay, this wasn't like the, the sinless Christian subculture, you know, just floating on this ark. Just the good people are here and the bad people are out there. No one knows. Going back, he knows it's your favor, God. It is your favor and your grace. I don't deserve it. I know I'm a sinful man. I know my family is sinful. And so we're going to, the first thing we're going to do, everybody stop. To his family, right? Stop. No, we're not going to start climbing trees. We're not going to, we're not going to go. Start working on our house. We're not going to go collect food. The first thing we're going to stop right now, we're going to build an altar and we're going to say thank you to God. And we're going to we're going to remember we're going to remember God and his grace and that we do not deserve to be here. This is probably the main reason that your Bible makes it very clear that Noah is worth imitating. Your Bible is, is full is full of heroes. And Noah is one of them. In first Corinthians eleven one, remember Paul is a hero. Paul says, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Uh, Hebrews thirteen seven says, Re- Remember your leaders. Consider their way of living and the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. So God gives us heroes, right? God gives us examples. God gives us people who are worthy of imitation. They will be sinful people, but they will also be saints who love God and honor God that we can imitate and Noah clearly provides us with an example here of, of, of how we can we can imitate imitate him. God mentions in Ezekiel chapter fourteen God mentions Noah alongside Daniel and Job as examples of righteousness. That's a, that's a big three. That's an all-star team in your Bible. Noah, Daniel, and Job. Daniel is the only one other than Jesus in your entire Bible where we never hear any mention of him sinning. Now, he was a sinful man, so we know he sinned, but there's no mention of it. And Job, we we know Job and we know how he honored and glorified God in the middle of agonizing circumstances. Noah is held up with those two as an example of someone that we should imitate. Now, now next week, for those of you who are familiar with the text, next week you're going to see something in Noah that we should not imitate. (laughs) Noah literally gets drunk and passes out naked in his house. This is one of the reasons and we 'll come back to this next week that you know the Bible is true most books when they 're writing about people that are their heroes that they admire, they hide all the blemishes, and your Bible does not do that like here 's Noah, imitate Noah, imitate Noah. what an example ah. <laughs> just a man, a sinner like you and, and like me as well hebrews eleven seven and 2 Peter 2 5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So, so, what Noah does here is something great. This is something great Noah does. And it provokes something in God. And that's what we read about now. So, the rest of our time this morning is looking at, at God's response. Let's, let's finish out chapter 8 first, verses 21 and 22. It says that when Noah came and worshiped God this way, your worship, our worship, when it's true, when it's not the worship that's just with our lips, but their hearts are far from me, when it is true worship and when you sing songs like you do today and when they actually are coming from your heart and you mean what you say, it is also a pleasing aroma that rises to God. It is amazing that we can affect the heart of God, that we can please God. That we can bring joy to God's heart. For those of you who love God. Do you not want to bring joy to his heart? Do you not want God to smile? Do you not want God to laugh? Do you not want God to be filled with joy? Well, when we worship him. And it is true worship. It is like a pleasing aroma that rises to him. And that's what Noah did. And here it says that, that when Noah worshipped God like this, God was pleased and then he was provoked to compassion. And it, what is it? it says that he said in his heart. So we're going to see in a bit in verses 9 through 17, God is actually going to proclaim this to Noah and his family. But here, God is he's thinking it in his heart. Noah worships him and it provokes God and it moves God. Joyfully, it moves him to compassion. So we're told, though, in verse 21, that it says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we have to ask ourselves the question we've asked before. Is man any different after the flood? Is man less sinful after the flood? Is man now entitled? Is man more deserving? Because this sounds just like Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And Moses, the author, is doing that on purpose. Nothing is, is different. It says that the Lord is never again going to curse the ground of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So it says that God is never going to wipe everything out because man is sinful from his youth. That doesn't make sense when you first read it. It should say God is going to wipe them out again because man is sinful from his youth. But what God is saying here is that his reason and his ground is his grace and his mercy. And if God doesn't decide to never destroy the earth again, it's just what's going to happen because it will get that bad again because man is sinful from his youth. So God is not saying I'm looking down and I'm telling you what, I'm never going to flood the earth again because I'm looking at humans 2.0. You learned your lesson. And you're you're not going to sin like you sinned before. That is not what God is saying. He is making it very clear that human nature has not changed since the flood. But God's attitude toward human nature changes. Graciously. And we'll see that God is going to do something to keep the world from getting as bad as it got before the flood. But here we see that God's attitude toward his earth, his creation has changed. James Boyce or the ESV study Bible says the aroma was pleasing, which implies rest and tranquility. The offering soothes God's anger toward human sin. So God looks down at Noah worshiping and God, we're told here, he said in his heart, God thinks to himself is how we would say that. And God thinks to Himself, I will never bring universal disaster again. And until that last disastrous day comes. There will be an end. But between now and the end, God says, I will never bring universal disaster again. And God says here, that until the end Of life as we know it. Until then, you can count on day and night. You can count on sunrises and stars. You can count on summer and fall and winter and spring. You can count on provision. You can count on harvest. You can, you can count on a, a blessed context for life. A blessed platform for life for the rest of time. And so this is the reason that the sun came up this morning. The reason the sun came up this morning is that after the flood, God decided to be gracious to all people and he decided never again never again to bring a universal disaster to the world because God is a gracious god and he keeps going as if that is as if that is not enough chapter 9 look at just verse 1 and God blessed Noah And his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God blesses Noah. Don't miss just those first four words. And God blessed Noah because blessing is a huge theme in the book of Genesis. We read about, right, Genesis is about the spread of sin and the spread of grace. It shouldn't go together, but they do. The spread of sin and the spread of blessing. So we read that man gets bad and worse and a little better and then even worse. And like this one step forward, two steps back kind of a thing with man. But what is consistent with God? He is faithful and he keeps blessing his, his people. Blessing is good that comes from God. That is what blessing really is. When people say they're blessed, they're knowingly, unknowingly saying that these good things are coming from God. This is what blessing is. And so God blessed Noah. It says the same thing to us in James chapter 1, verse 17 that says that all good and perfect gifts, where do they come from? They come from above. They come from above. Your father, if you are a Christian and God is your father, God loves you. And one of the ways He loves you is He blesses you. He gives you things. Not necessarily stuff. Though some of you have been given a lot of stuff. But God blesses you. He, he gives you treasure that is not going to, to rust. He gives you treasure that's not going to to be fleeting, he gives you treasure that's not going to end, and everything good that he gives you in this lifetime, the Bible tells us, is a, is a foretaste. So the, the the things that he's giving you is just like a preview of coming attractions. Right in our home, the way we did Christmas growing up was Christmas Eve. You opened everything except the big present, the big present, and, and the big present you you opened. Christmas morning, and there was there was a few big presents that I can remember, like a bike. Some of you remember getting a bike when you were a kid. I remember a jungle gym, jungle gym, and we lived in Nebraska at the time. My dad and brother were building a, a jungle gym in Nebraska in December, like twenty below zero. They were blessing me, <laughs> loved me, <laughs> but what Christmas Eve was—you have all these these gifts, but if it, it, you know. You know, you can't believe it sometimes, but it's going to get even better. You can hardly sleep at night, right? We should hardly sleep, right, in anticipation of the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Romans 8 says, what, what, is, what is coming is so good that we, we can't even find vocabulary to, to get there. So, but this is all pointing there. So God blesses Noah. But then here in verse one, not only is he blessed Noah, but he he recommissions them to be fruitful and multiply, which should remind you exactly what God did with Adam. So God is starting over with Noah and his family Uh, Just like he did with Adam and his family. So God told Adam this very same thing, right? God said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, and and Noah is is like a second Adam in that sense. God is starting over through his family. And so God gives him the same commission. He's going to repeat it again in verse 7. He gives him the same commission. Okay, here we are. uh, We're out of the ark. You know, what are we supposed to do? What do you want us to do? What is what is our job? Okay, are we building homes? Are we are we building malls? Pursuit of happiness? I mean, what is what is the deal? God says, right, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So God is telling this little family, okay, enjoy marriage, have children, train them up to love me. Fill the earth, right, fruitfully. So, God is saying, I want to see the earth filled with people who love me. And so, if the earth is going to be filled with people who love me, you need to have kids. If possible, have a lot of them. Have kids, and then love those kids, and and read the Bible to them, and set good examples for them, and, and tell them about Jesus, so that when they were old, when they're old, they will not depart from the lessons and the teaching and the destruction instruction (laughs) that was funny the instruction that you gave them they won't depart from it okay they'll they'll hear about god from you they'll see you love god and they'll want to love god when they get older that's the hope that's the hope and and almost a reasonable expectation if you love the lord and and train your children up that way so he tells them this is what i want you to do this is a glorious calling see we we miss this in in america sometimes because we, we 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 don't value marriage as much as we should we we don't value children as much as we should and we don't value discipleship as much as we should we we don't value God's main means of spreading Christianity and that is through families who love children whether you have your own children or not we love kids we say this all the time we love children and when babies are here we we love them and we want to train them up to love jesus and we want to disciple them because we want to see god glorified like the first question of the westminster catechism what is the chief end of man what are we here for and the answer is to glorify god and enjoy him forever every dinner table at the myers house we look at each other and we say we are here to what boys and Girl, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is good. That is sweet. And that is what God calls us to do. And we miss that sometimes. And we elevate other things. I've got to be in. I've got to have some significant, important ministry. Some humanitarian effort, some ministry in the church. I've got to go. I have to go to another country. I I, I have to. We have this pressure, right, to do these what we create in our minds as these big things in order to glorify God. If you're called to that, wonderful. But if you're not, you are to glorify God and enjoy him forever, wherever you are. And when you do that, it is a pleasing aroma to God. There's a very interesting book written by a man who's not a Christian, who who looks at uh, American culture and evaluates it. And he wrote this book called What to Expecting When No One is Expecting. And basically, the, the premise of this book ends up being that we're not being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And you have people do not want children in America today, so much so that you have countries like China, right, who have one Child policy. Well, the fertility rate. In America and the birth rate in America is almost the same as it is in China. We don't even need the law. It's just the culture that we are creating. And the proposal of the book is just mathematics. And if something doesn't change. I propose it starts with Christians. If we don't start getting fruitful and multi- multiply, multiply is the point. We should try to multiply. And if we don't multiply, it's the premise of this book written by a man who's not even a Christian. Guess where what America is in a few hundred years? It's just off the map. doesn't exist anymore. It's just gone. So God looks at Noah. He looks at his three sons. He, he blesses them. He says He says, listen, Noah, I know you... You just came off this ark. I I know you've got some post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, can can you even imagine? I know you're just wondering. I mean, every time, can you imagine how, if God doesn't say these things, can you imagine what Noah would feel every time it rained? Absolute terror. Absolute terror. And so what does God do? He blesses them. He's going to tell them, don't worry. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. It's going to come up. Right. May 19th, 2013, the the sun's going to keep coming up. I'm going to I'm going to bless you. And, And so here's what I want you to focus on. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, love me and tell others to love me. What a glorious calling. Are you a Christian? It is your calling. What a glorious calling. Noah's blessing is our blessing. Verses two and three. I think this is the greatest blessing here. some of you have missed it. It is just wonderful. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants... I give you everything. So God reminds Noah that he is the pinnacle of creation and all creation is for him. This is really important for us to understand that the the, the way worth and value goes, according to your Bible, is God, people, animals. Some of you love animals. There's nothing wrong with loving animals. But you should not love animals more than you love people. And we should not treat animals the way we treat people. Now, some of you guys probably have your dogs and you put them in baby strollers and your purses and you take them to the mall. And I'm not going to judge that, but be careful. <laughs> be careful. Like I see the dog park next to the kids playground and there's more dogs and, than there are kids, right? We just need to be careful. Okay? It is God. It is man. Okay, and it is animals and and God demonstrates this this principle by giving Noah perhaps the second greatest gift God has ever given to man steak. And all the men said, at least. Right. And, And maybe some women, too. Right. And God gave the man steak you rise before Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, man was under the curse of vegetarianism. Do you do you, I'm not I'm I'm kind of I'm not joking. I am not. I know we've got some vegetarians here. I'm praying for you. I, I know of at least one vegan. I'm on my knees nightly for you. I mean this is this is amazing. The, before this, it was all salad bars, literally hell on earth. It is probably one of the reasons it was as bad as it was before Noah. Give him some steak, Lord. Give him some protein. And this might just turn around. Can you imagine going into a Cattleman's and seeing like, you know, broccoli up on the wall? No, it's like a bison and elk and a cow. And when you see a cow, when I go home this afternoon, I drive by cows. And when I drive by cows, I get hungry. Amen. And I am reminded, though, they are, they are a black and white sign that God loves me. <laughs> God loves me. We are a carnivorous church. We thought about putting it on our website, like one of our distinctives. That might be a bit too much. Listen, you, we need to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. And this is, I, I really do, but this is a gift that God gives to Noah. I mean, you, most of you know, meat tastes wonderful. A lot better than vegetables. They're good. Some of them are good. but They're just weird, most of them. And meat is good. It tastes good. Most of you have experienced that. It is a, you, you, The barbecue's going, and it is a pleasing aroma. And you love it. You eat. And when you eat, you should enjoy it. And you should enjoy it. And you should be reminded of God's... Seriously, you should be reminded of God's love for you. That God is gracious for. you. I mean, God is just blessing Noah and blessing Noah and bless. Before every green plant was for you, but now I give you every living thing. Kill it and grill it. Hey <laughs> man, that was like a like a mini sermon right in the middle of the big sermon. Verse four, four through six. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God says two very significant things here that I want to draw attention to. The first phrase is for your, he's talking to man. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And he gives us reason that man is created in the image of God. And so God says after the flood, that homicide, murder is unacceptable. Is unacceptable. This is the beginning in our Bibles here. This is the beginning in Genesis chapter nine of capital punishment. This is capital punishment instituted here with Noah and his family. This is the beginning of government and law in your Bible. This is why today coming back here to Genesis chapter nine. This is why today we have, even in our country, this is why we have criminal law. This is why we have police officers. This is why we have prisoners. This is why we have the death penalty. This is why we have lethal injection in California. We don't do it very often, but that is why there is this punishment That is put out for those who would shed the blood of man. Therefore, by man shall his blood be shed. And this was not the case before the flood. We know that this was not the case before the flood. Do you remember God did not require a reckoning from Cain or Lamech? Remember both of them. Cain murdered his brother and was not put to death. Lamech boasted of how many people he had killed, how many young people he had killed. And, and he was not put to death. And do you remember how wicked the world became? Do you remember how wicked the world became before the flood? So what you see here is that God has a plan enacted here to restrain evil in the world. I mean, God works in the hearts of men. But then outwardly, this is God's plan to restrain evil in the world, to keep it from getting as bad as it did before the flood. And so here he starts to establish government. He starts to establish government. You will govern There are consequences for certain things that will be done. God begins to establish government and then he gives the government a sword to punish the wicked. Remember the sword that the cherubim have only had up until this point? And they're guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And they're the ones who use that as the threat of those who would try to cross. Well, now God is giving that sword to Noah and to his boys. And this is God's plan to to restrain evil in the world. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons this is how God has been gracious. One of the reasons the world is not as bad today as it was before the blood is because God has given the sword of justice to the government in order to restrain evil. This is what the first five verses of Romans 13 are all about. This is not an antiquated idea. This is not an idea isolated to your Old Testament. It's carried through into Romans chapter 13 in the first five verses, which expounds on this. You you remember, here are the phrases from that chapter that the government is God's servant for our good. This is what government is for. One of very few reasons that government exists in your Bible. And one is this, the government is God's servant for our good rulers you remember rulers hold no terror for those who do good is what romans 13 says hold no terror for those who do good but for those who do wrong so if we do right there should be no wrong if we do wrong we should fear what does romans 13 say because god has not given the sword to the government for nothing He's given it to them to restrain the wicked, to punish the wicked. The authorities, Romans 13 says, are an agent of wrath to bring punishment to the evil doer. So this is how it's supposed to work. Not necessarily how it works here. And we'll talk briefly about that. But this is how it was to work in Genesis chapter 9. And this is how it is supposed to work today. That the government should use the sword to enforce the law. Now here's the key though. So the government should use the sword to enforce the law. Laws which should be based on God's law. Which is how this can go terribly wrong and lead to tyranny and authoritarianism when the laws imposed are not God's laws. But that is how it's supposed to work, that the government should use the sword to enforce the law laws, which should be based on God's law, which is our only true dictionary of what is right and wrong. God has given you a conscience, which is just God's word written on your heart. So all of us, unless we've lied to our conscience so much or have seared our conscience, the Bible says we know innately what is right and wrong. And that is where morality comes from. It is not a consensus of people. Which is what you have to decide it is if you don't believe in God. But morality is put on our hearts. God's Word is written on our hearts. And then the totality of God's Word and His desire and His law as He has revealed it to us is in His Bible. So we need to know God's Bible so that we know what pleases God. And then we pay attention to things like Genesis chapter 9 and say, God, what do you take seriously? And what should we take seriously? So just a, a couple of thoughts in regards to that before we move on to the very last section. Number one is that we are born wicked and we will mature in wickedness apart from the restraint of the law. So law is good. You hear the debate law and grace and law and the gospel. We want to be careful not to say one over the other. It's law and grace. It is law and the gospel. You appreciate grace because of the law. You need the gospel because of the law. So law is good. And scripture makes it clear that from the womb we go astray. Psalm says we come forth speaking lies. The heart is deceitful beyond all things that sin exists in the womb. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. And so we are born sinful and we will mature in wickedness, just like they did before the flood, apart from the restraint of law. So the law is good. We are not born as blank slates, as is popular to think today. We are not blank slates. We are not born morally neutral. This is the teaching of the Bible. We are not born morally neutral only to sin later when contaminated by our environment, which is very a comforting belief because that means that my sin is someone else's fault. That's why that's appealing. No, I'm morally neutral. I was fine until all of you messed me up. So apart from you, I would have been just fine. Thank you. It's a way of self-glorification. And this is the point that God reiterates in verse 21 when He says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Martin Luther is helpful here. He says this in his commentary on Genesis. We have, already pa- we have, al- we have hardly passed our fifth year of life When we look for idleness, play, wantonness and pleasures, but shun discipline, shake off obedience, hate all virtues, but especially the higher ones of truth and justice. Reason at that time awakes as from a deep sleep and becomes aware of some pleasures, but not yet the true ones. That is said so well. Awaken your little child awakens to some pleasures, but not the real true ones, namely God, and of some evil things, but not yet the worst by which it is possessed. So, just as parents have need of the rod, so now the magistrate or the government needs a prison and bonds, the sword of the magistrate, to keep the evil nature under control. And so Luther says God establishes government and gives it to the sword to hold wantonness in check, lest violence and other sins proceed. Without limit. So the law is good. Law in your home is good. Law in your life is good. Law in your society is good. We are not to be a lawless people. Now, some of you may agree or disagree with capital punishment. I know that's controversial in the church today. And some of you have, and I've heard good reasons on both sides where you're trying to really wrestle with what God's word has to say. But interestingly, one of the most popular arguments against capital punishment is that people are created in the image of God. So even if they have taken a life, taking someone else's life should not be our practice because they are created in the image of God. But make sure to note that Genesis chapter nine, that is the very reason it institutes capital punishment is because people are created in the image of God. And so it is to be taken more seriously than any other crime. Because these are image bearers of God. So we cry out for justice. Whether it's death penalty, whether it's imprisonment, wherever you land on that, we cry out for God's justice and we're thankful for God's law in Genesis chapter nine. And we're thankful that God commissioned his people to enforce the law by punishing evil. We praise God for that. Now, all that said, the second thing to say in regards to this is that the law falls short. His law is good. The law is good, but the law falls short. The law can restrain people. That's everything we've been saying. The law can restrain people, but the law cannot change people. Some parents think the law can change their kids, and it can't. I'll just keep enforcing these rules and enforcing these laws, and, and they will obey me. Tug on it. They will obey me. And if there's enough consequences over time; they will obey me, and Lord willing, they will obey you. But they may never obey you. And hopefully, the end of your in a, in a family setting, hopefully, the end of your child rearing is not law. Hopefully, it's grace. And hopefully it's the gospel and hopefully it is dependence on Jesus Christ, because we know ultimately that rules and law and enforcement of rules and laws and punishment when laws and rules are broken, all good things. While we know those are good things, we know that it cannot change the hearts of people. It cannot change the hearts of people can restrain us as sinful people who don't want consequences. But the law cannot change hearts. James Boyce says the government can express and enforce penalties, but it cannot develop the morality those laws and penalties express. So that means for us as Christians that the government and law, that we understand its necessary place, that we are thankful, but it is not the answer. We do not need more and better laws. Good night. We do not need more and better laws only or primarily. We need a godly citizenry. What we need is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What we need is godly people. What we need is people who want to love God. And the only way we get people who love God is if God changes the hearts of people. So what that means is that we're not Consumed with concern over government and law, concern yes, but we're not consumed with concern over government and law. But we are a people who are consumed with prayer, on our knees. Which is Paul's application to Timothy when he says, "Pray for those who are in authority." What are you What are you praying for? That they would They would pass good legislation, maybe, but you're praying that God would change. Their hearts This is what you're praying for your children. This is what you're praying for your neighbors, because the law does not change people. God changes people. And then the last thing is just to imagine the trouble that we're in if the laws expressed do not represent God's law. So the government still has the sword, right, to enforce the law. But what if the law, what if the laws expressed and enforced do not reflect what is truly right and wrong? Imagine the case and the trouble we're in and the prayers needed if we have laws permitting evil and laws prohibiting good. Now, friends, we do live in a nation that is not filled with people who love Jesus. And we today have laws that prohibit good. And we have laws that permit evil. Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is certainly for us from the prophet Isaiah. So God gives them work to do. God gives them food to eat. God brings order and restraint through the sword. And now finally we come to verses 8 through 17. What God thought in his heart in chapter 8, verse 21 and 22, God now expresses in words to Noah. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So first notice what God says in verses 8 through 11, where God proclaims his covenant with Noah and all mankind. And it is no different from the covenant that God has already made with his people, the covenant that God made with Adam. Remember, covenant. Covenant, a huge word in your Bible. When you think of your relationship with God, you think of covenant. Husbands and wives, when you think of your relationship with one another, you think of covenant. Okay, a covenant is is a a, a a binding it is a binding agreement between two people that brings them together. Two parties coming together, right? Personal commitment on each side, commitment to one another. And then there's, there are consequences for keeping or breaking the covenant. And this is how God comes together with his people. He makes covenant with his people. We're brought together with God, and then God's covenant is usually made with one individual, but it's made through all individuals whom that individual represents, like Adam and Noah and Moses and David and Jesus. God makes his covenants with them, but it's all this covenant of grace that God commits and makes promises to his people. And this is a very significant covenant that God makes to Noah, but not Unlike all other covenants that God makes in that, if you remember our study before, God's covenants are always unilateral, they are eternal, and they are gracious. This is unilateral. Everything is said by God and is for his pleasure. This is not God coming down to Noah and saying, hey, I'd like to have a covenant with you. What do you think? This is not God saying, hey, here's what I'd like to do. What are you interested in doing? This is not God saying, hey, you know, what would you like for me? I'm God. And I've got a lot. What would you like? And I'll tell you what I want from you. And we'll bargain and come to some kind of an agreement. No, covenant is unilateral. I mean, listen to these words. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Then God blessed Noah. Nine one. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you. Nine, eight through ten. 9.11, I established my covenant with you. 9.12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. 9.15, I will remember my covenant between me and you. 9.17, so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So God's covenant is unilateral. It is from God. In them, man does not bargain for, and this is the reason, man has nothing to bargain with. God's not like, all right, what do you got? Right, nothing. (laughs) That's what I thought. No. A nice car, nice house. No. There's not, what do we bargain with God? How do we bargain with God? What do we have to offer him that God doesn't already have? So there is covenant. There is relationship because God condescends to us and God comes down. It is eternal. God uses the word never, right? Three times. And with God, never means never, right? Yes means yes with God. No means no. Always means always. Never means never. We use these words and we don't mean them, which is why the New Testament tells us. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be like God. But we fall short. Right, always, never, yes, no. What is the first thing when we get in an argument and we're offended by the person? We say something like, "You always do this." And we say that because we we just want to want to stab them with our words. We know that's not true. Of course, it's not always. Or we make commitments to people. We, we sin against them. And we say, "You know, I will never." I will, look me. I will never do that again. And then we do it again. You remember, this was this was Peter's words to to Jesus. Right, right right before Peter denied him. And you remember what Jesus says, the NIV says, I will never disown you. And then it says all the disciples said the same thing. We will never disown you. And guess what they did in a matter of hours? They all disowned him. So never with us. It does not mean never, but. God, when he says never, he means never. And, and I'll just say this, that God's promises never to do something or never to let something happen are some of his most precious promises in the Bible. Listen to some of them. And let them, let them sink in. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, these are true for you. Judges two one. God said there to the Israelites, I will never break my covenant with you. In Psalm fifteen it lists a number of things that, that, that are that we must do in order to be upright and righteous before God, and then in Psalm fifteen five, God says, He who does these things will never be shaken. Psalm fifty five, twenty-two Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Proverbs 10.30, the righteous will never be uprooted. John 4.14, Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. John 6.35, he who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. John 8.51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John 10.27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John eleven twenty six. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. God says over and over and over again. Phrases like never will I leave you. Never will. Will I forsake you? God's covenant here with Noah. God's covenant with you, Christian. Adopted son and daughter. His covenant is unilateral. It is from God, secured by God. It is eternal. Never, never, never will you know these pains. Never. And it is gracious. Verse 21 of chapter 8. Man is still sinful. And yet God makes a covenant with sinful man. Because God is a gracious God. And then this covenant is is unique and unlike all the other covenants in that it is universal and unconditional. There are aspects of this covenant that are universal and unconditional. In other words, God says that that this applies not only to my people, my children, but all those on the face of the earth. The sun will rise. The seasons will come. You'll see stars at night. And that is God's grace extended to all. Whether you're a Christian or not, it is God's grace extended to all. It is universal and it is unconditional. There's no conditions that are required. God just says, I'm going to do it. That settles it. I will never bring disaster to this world again. And then God in his grace, in closing, gives him a sign. You'll find in all of these covenants, there is a sign right here. It's a rainbow circumcision, the Sabbath day, the communion cup. There are these signs of the covenant to remind us of God's covenant with us. Here it is with Noah, the sign of the covenant between you and me, every living creature for all future generations. See, I've set my bow in the cloud and it should be a sign of covenant between me and the earth. that is on the earth. The sign and the seal of this covenant with Noah is the rainbow. Now, unfortunately, the rainbow does not mean what it should mean. It has been hijacked by homosexuals today. When we see the rainbow, many of you think of the gay rights movement, which is ironic because God is the one who put the rainbow in the sky, either for the first time here or attached significance to it for the first time here. But God put the rainbow in the sky to remind all the world of his love for them and his grace toward them. And so when Noah saw whether it was days or weeks when those dark clouds started to come over the mountains and roll toward him and he wondered if this was going to be the end of him and the end of his family. God also had the sunlight break through the clouds and there would be a rainbow on display. And every time Noah would see that rainbow, he would remember he would remember what he would remember as we should remember, you should all be dead. When we see this sign of God's covenant, we remember that we should all be dead. But we are not dead. We are not dead because of God's grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for the great gifts You've given us. And thank You for the signs of these gifts You've given us. Thank You for reminders of these gifts You've given us. God, with our hearts beating and with air going into our lungs and our eyes and our ears functioning, may we be thankful to you for these graces. As we worship you through songs, we worship you through the drinking of this juice and eating this bread, remembering your sacrifice for us, God, may we be filled with gratitude, gratitude that provokes us to worship you and honor you in all that we do. God, thank You that when it rains, we have nothing to fear. Thank You, God, that we do not go to bed tonight wondering if the darkness will be pierced again with light. For we know You have made a covenant with us. You have made a great promise to us that You will never, you will never flood the earth again. So thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. And this coming to You, this gratitude coming to You, God, lifted up to You from us undeserving sinners. Undeserving of love, deserving of wrath. Thank you, God, for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas truth.com.